You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Amen. Yeah, praise God. We're going to do something a little different this morning. I know you're expecting me to pray, but if you have a Bible, will you turn with me to Exodus chapter 40? Exodus 40. Uh, we don't always do it this way, but from time to time it's good for us to stand with the Bible open because we believe that in and through the pages of Scripture is the primary way that God speaks to us. And so we stand here together needing to hear from God, and he is gonna show up to us in his word. He's gonna speak to us. Exodus chapter 40. I'm gonna start in verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. This Moses did according to all the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected, and Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put its poles and he raised up its pillars and he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he took the testimony and he put it into the ark and he put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark and he brought the ark into the tabernacle and he set up the veil of the screen, the screen, the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. And he put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and he set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and he'd offered on it the burnt offering, the grain offering as the Lord commanded Moses. And he set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. And when they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and he set up the screen of the gate of the court. And so Moses finished the work. And then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful that regardless of how we come into this room or how we're watching, you will speak to us this morning what we need to hear. And so I pray for the folks in this room, for those watching online, God, would you convict our hearts where we need to be convicted, encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Ultimately, God, would you remind us that you love us, not because we deserve it, but because of Jesus, and we pray this in his name, amen. Amen, you can have a seat. Good morning again. Can't respond to me as much as you do to Bill, I see. Uh, It's good to see you, hopefully. It's good for you to see me. Uh, My name is Clint, one of the pastors on staff. Thankful that you are here with us. If you came in late and you're a guest with us, we'd love to invite you to our guest info tent out front. We can answer any questions you have there. So all the way back in January, we started a sermon series on the book of Exodus. 
And we're gonna finish that today. Um, and this is, I think, the 28th sermon in and through the book of Exodus, and so it's been a good long run. Um, and what we just read at the end of Exodus 40 was how the book ends. This is how the book of Exodus ends. But before we dig into that, let's remember what the book of Exodus is about, right? So Exodus is a word, it's not even, doesn't even show up in the second book of the Bible. It's a Greek word that means deliverance or departure. And the reason why this book is given that title is because the story of Exodus is the story of the people of God being delivered out of slavery in Egypt. And so it's given the title Exodus. And the, the, my goal this morning, what I want us to do with our time together is really simple. It's just to answer one question, why? Why does God deliver his people out of slavery in Egypt? And, and I don't know about you, but this is a question that gets asked a lot in my house. Why? Right? Not so much why does God deliver his people out of slavery in Egypt? I know my kids are pastor's kids, but we're not there yet, okay? Just why? Why to anything and everything? I don't know about you guys. I live with a group of tiny litigators, all right? They, at any and all times, demand an explanation for everything. They need a briefing. Hey, we didn't talk about this. What's happening, right? So, hey, go put those toys away. Why? It doesn't matter why, son, because I told you, and I need you, to, right? That's kind of how it goes. Hey, will you go put your shoes on? Why? Hey, stop sitting on your brother's head. Why? You know, like we need an explanation for everything. And occasionally I'll take the time to explain to them why it's inappropriate and you're probably gonna seriously injure him for you sitting on his head. But most of the time it's just because I said, man, because I said it, I need you to listen and obey, right? And the good news for us is that this question that we wanna answer today, it's not like that. We don't have to wonder why God delivered his people from Egypt because the Bible actually tells us only it's not the answer that we would expect, okay? So what happens in Exodus is God raises up a man to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt, and he shows up to who? Moses, that's right. I'm gonna ask you some questions this morning, not rhetorical, okay? So good job, Moses, you passed the first test. So he shows up to Moses in the burning bush, and he says to him, I want you to go back to Egypt, where you came from, where you're on the run from, and I want you to go to a man named Pharaoh, and I want you, that's the king of Egypt, and I want you to tell him to let my people go. All right, so get this in your mind. Couple million Israelites working for free for, for Egypt for the most powerful man on the planet. I want you, Moses, nobody, who this guy wanted to kill, I want you to go back to this guy, walk right up to him and say, listen, the Lord has something to say. The Lord, Yahweh, the all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere at all times, God, the one who created all things and all things were created for, he says this to you. You are mistreating his people and he wants you to just let them go. How does he respond? Exodus 5, verse 2, should be on the screen. Pharaoh said this, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice that I would let Israel go? I don't know him, and moreover, I ain't letting him go. That's the KSV, the Clint Standard Version. <laughs> Pharaoh pretty much responds the way that my kids do when I tell them to do something. Why? Why would I do that? I don't know him. I don't recognize his authority over me, right? Who is he to tell me what to do? And then he basically demands an explanation but rather than explaining who he is to Pharaoh, God shows him. And he shows him through a series of 10 plagues that he sends on the Egyptians. And each time before the next plague, God sends Moses in to remind Pharaoh, hey, the Lord says, let his people go. And then he explains why, Exodus 7, verse 16, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, he sent me to you. This is Moses talking to Pharaoh. He says, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. Again, in chapter eight, verse one, the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. 
This happens several other times in the book of Exodus, right? So God says the reason why he delivers his people out of slavery in Egypt is so they can serve him. And I know like, your mind starts working to go, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would that be? Well, surely this word doesn't mean what we think it means. It doesn't mean actually serve. Well, yeah, it actually, in the original language, it means to work or to do or even to worship. And this is the answer to our question. Why does God deliver his people from slavery in Egypt? It's because he no longer wants them to serve Pharaoh, but rather he wants them to come and serve him. God sets Israel free so they would live for him. And this is what I meant about the answer not being what we expect, because this goes against so much of the way our culture has wired us to think, right? We live in a world that values the individual above all else, and we reject authority at almost every turn, okay? And if you don't believe me, spend just a few minutes this afternoon scrolling through Facebook or Instagram, or or you guys can tell me whichever platform's cool uh, right now. Just spend just a few minutes on that, and what you will find is that we reject authority, Right? You will find that we live in a world that says true freedom is found in complete autonomy. True freedom is found in you doing whatever it is that makes you feel like you. Right, And you gotta be true to yourself. And if there's people around you who don't like who you are, then you go find new people who will accept you for who you are. Right, That's the world that we live in. We ultimately believe we are the center of our own worlds. And before you get all fired up and go, yep, that's, you're right, Pastor, you're right, this, this generation, right? Before we start blaming the next generation for our problems, you need to know this is not a new problem. One of the things I heard most growing up as a kid when I didn't get what I wanted, my dad would say, son, the world doesn't revolve around you. Anyone ever heard that? That's right, it's not a new problem. And it didn't even start with us, right? This is, this is exactly what we see in Exodus with Pharaoh, He's rejecting authority. He believes that he's the center of his own world. And this is what we see actually even further back in the garden with Adam and Eve. What do they say? I know God said I shouldn't eat this fruit, but who is he to tell me what's best for me? It's that we believe we know what's best. We live at the center of our own world and we reject creation. This isn't a new problem. This is a sin problem, right? And as a result, it sounds wrong to us that the reason that God would rescue his people from serving Pharaoh is so they could serve him because we think, where's the freedom in that? It sounds unloving that God would do that, but in fact, this is the most loving thing that God could possibly do for them because this is what they were created for. You and I too. Adam and Eve were created in the garden, put in the garden by God, created by God, and they, were, they are his image bearers. That means they are his representatives in the world, right? <clears throat> and God puts them in the garden. He doesn't say, hey, have at it. Go do whatever it is that you wanna do. No, he gives them work to do. He gives them what theologians call the cultural mandate. Genesis 1, verse 28 says, God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and he, he gives them work there. And if you go, well, that doesn't sound like work. Fruitful, multiply, sounds kind of fun. I'm not gonna explain that one. Um, Genesis 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And so God doesn't do this because he's cruel or because he he thinks they're bored and so he's gonna give them some chores to do. He does this because he's the creator God and as the creator, he knows how life works best. This is what God's doing in Exodus and this is why he says to Pharaoh, let my people go so they can serve me, right? And what he's saying is, I don't want them living for you, Pharaoh, I want them living for me. And so regardless of how difficult it might be for us to wrap our minds around this, Serving God and living our lives for him under his authority is not a robbing of your freedom. It's actually an invitation into it. 
In fact, it's the only way for you to actually be free in this life is to gladly live your life under the authority of the creator God, to live for him. And so God delivers his people from Egypt because he has work for them to do, right? Here comes another one of those questions. He wants them to build something. What does he want them to build? That's even worse than the Moses answer, a tabernacle. He wants them to build a tabernacle, right? And if you don't know what tabernacle is, you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, just think really fancy tent in the middle of the desert. Makes no sense, right? God wants them to build this fancy tent in the middle of the desert. And he gives them all these detailed instructions about how he wants them to build it. And when I say detailed, I mean, if you ever bought anything from Ikea, you know, you get that like textbook instruction manual and you get done and it looks right, but there's like 17 leftover screws and you're like, well, maybe they just gave me 17 extras in case I missed one or something. No, then the thing falls apart, right? This puts any of that to shame. So in 25 to 31, God gives his people these detailed instructions for how to build the tabernacle. And then in what we're gonna cover this morning, chapter 35 to 40, this is Israel actually building the tabernacle. So 25 to 31, instructions. 35 to 40, construction, okay? And what we read earlier in chapter 40 was Moses assembling the tabernacle for the first time. So all the, all the components, all the parts were made according to specification, according to the textbook, and they bring them to Moses and he assembles it, right? And that's what we read. And again, it was incredibly detailed. I read bases and frames and poles and pillars and tents and veils, and that's not even what goes inside the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat and the table and the basin and the lampstand, right? And when you read through this, and maybe you felt this when I was reading, it's easy to think, what does this have to do with me? Right, and, it, and if actually you're reading through your Bible and you get to this part, you're really gonna think that because you've already read it pretty much verbatim when he gives the instructions. So it's easy to think, why do I need two sets of instructions? Right, one will do, okay? Let me show you what, what I want you to see here from this. It's really simple. It's that God doesn't need them to build the tabernacle. He doesn't need them. The Bible says that the way that all of creation came into existence was that God did what? He spoke. That means that the most, imagine this, the most awestruck you have ever felt in your life by looking at creation, whatever that moment was, God created all of that without lifting a finger. He speaks it into existence. God didn't need Israel to build the tabernacle. He could have just said the word and it would drop down out of heaven. In fact, in Revelation 21, the Bible says when the new heaven and the new earth come together, they collide, this heavenly city, this new Jerusalem, it just comes out of heaven and all its perfection and all its glory. So God is gonna do it. He doesn't need them to build the tabernacle. And he could have just said the word and it would have been done. And wouldn't that have been so much easier? He didn't need all the instructions. We don't need the 17 extra screws, right? They, they could have just, he could have just said the word and it would be done. And that would have been so much easier. Any of you have small children, they make a mess and you let them try to clean it up first. What happens? It gets worse and you end up cleaning it up anyways. They like smear it down into the fibers of the carpet. Now your job is impossible where before you could have just wiped it with a paper towel, you know? But so why do you let them do it? You're better at it. It would be easier if you just did it the first time, but you let them do it because you want to invite them in. You want them to learn and grow as humans. You want them to see responsibility. You want them to see the role that they have in the world. And this is what God is doing with Israel. He is inviting them to participate in the work that he's doing because this is what they were created for. This is what they were created for. Image bearers of God, his representatives in the world, they were created to live, not for Pharaoh or even for themselves. They were created to live for him. 
And the same thing is true for you and me. And we've said this countless times in this series that the Exodus story is our story. Only we haven't been delivered from Egypt. We have been delivered from a far greater enemy, sin and death. And God brings us out from underneath the authority of our sin, not through the waters of the Red Sea or because of a Passover lamb, but through the sacrifice and bloodshed of his son, Jesus. And as a result, we are set free from the bondage of our sins. We are set free to live our lives for him gladly under his authority. We are set free to live for him. And just like with the Israelites, God is inviting us to participate in the work he's doing in the world. Only he's not inviting us or commissioning us to build a tabernacle, he's commissioning us to make disciples. To participate with him in building his church and making disciples, a word that means followers of Jesus. That we would become so convinced of God's love for us personally that our lives would be compelled by that love to share that with the people around us and invite them into the relationship that they can have for God. 2 Corinthians 5 says that we are ambassadors for Christ. That means we are his representatives. Wherever God has put you in your life, in the space and place of your life, you are a representative of Jesus if you are a Christian. And God could have just said the word and it'd be done. He doesn't need to invite us in, but he does. It would be so much easier if he just said, all the people who are ever gonna believe are gonna believe and we all just kind of go up to heaven. But he invites us to participate. He has invited us in. He gives you and me and his church a role to play in the work that he's doing in this world. So God has set you free from your sin so that you can live for him. And if that's true, and I believe the, the book of Exodus and the whole Bible says that it is, if that's true, how could we possibly be bored in our lives? If the sovereign God of the universe has specifically and strategically placed you in your home, on your street, in your office, in your classroom, in your chair, if God is inviting you to participate in the work that he is doing in the world, how could you possibly be dissatisfied in your circumstances? Go, man, if I just had a different car, if we just lived in a different house, if I just had a different job, if I just had a different spouse, whatever it is, we get dissatisfied in our circumstances and we miss that God is inviting us to do what he's doing in the world. He's invited us in. And my guess is, if we get dissatisfied or bored in our lives, it's because we're not living for God, we're living for something or someone else. So what do you live for? What is it that motivates you to do the things that you do in your life? Is it money? The comfort that money can give you? Is it power? Is it that you want people to think you're important? Is it control over the circumstances of your life or approval from the people around you? What is it that you live for? Church in Christ, God has set you free from sin. He has invited you to live for him and given you a role to play in the work he's doing in the world. And I don't know about you, but I do not want to settle with making Egypt the best that it could possibly be. Toys and trinkets and all this stuff. And all the while, I'm living under this, the authority of someone else that I wasn't created for and I'm slave to Pharaoh, I'm slave to my sin, but man, I got this new boat. I got all these other things happening. I don't wanna settle for living my life, making Egypt the best it could be. I wanna go with him. I wanna live my life for him. So what does that look like? What does it mean for us to live for God? I wanna give you four things in the time we have left. And a bunch of you were like, sure? Yeah, four things, we're gonna be fine, all right? 
Look with me, chapter 40, verse 32. When they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed, as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and he set up the screen of the gate, the court. So Moses finished the work, and then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So verse 33 says, Moses finished the work. That's what he built, put together the tabernacle. No screws left over. Verse 34, and then, and that may not seem like much, but one of the commentaries I read said there's, there's an emphasis in the original language that we miss in the English. And so when you read your Bible, you see the subtitle, the glory of the Lord. So you finish 33, you kind of pause, and then you start a new paragraph. But what's happening here, the scene that the Bible's trying to draw us into is that as soon as the last pole or curtain or ring or whatever goes up on the tabernacle, then... Then the cloud covers the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. This is, if you're not sure, this is the spirit of God coming to dwell with his people. The same people who, while Moses is on the mountain receiving this instruction, they are impatient, they demand an idol that they can worship someone else. Say, this is the God who delivers us from Egypt. The same people who, in Exodus 14, verse 11, say to Moses, to complain and whine, and they say, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here in the wilderness to die? So these complaining, whining, idolatrous people, people who you and I would have given up on long ago, Exodus 40 says, when the work of the tabernacle was finished, then the spirit of God comes down and the glory of the Lord fills their tabernacle. And the point is not only does God invite you in to participate in the work that he's doing in the world, but he intends to be with you as you do it. That's the point. He wants to be with you as you do it. This is God's plan all along in the tabernacle. Exodus 25, verse eight on the screen. It says, let them, the people of God, let them make me a sanctuary. That's another word for tabernacle. Why? So that I may dwell in their midst. The whole point of him inviting them to participate in what he's doing is to establish and maintain a relationship with them. God says, I wanna dwell with them. And what this means is, the first thing, living for God, the only way to live for God is to live with God. The only way to live for God is to live with God. And, and you understand the difference between those two things, right? Living for God, living with God. The difference is the relationship isn't just transactional, right? It's built on genuinely enjoying being with one another, being together. So a transactional relationship is one that only wants what the other person can give you, is only interested in what they can do or what needs to be done, even. So it goes like, here's an example, transactional relationship. Get a phone call from a buddy, hadn't seen forever in college, he hits you up and says, hey man, I'm in town, I'd love to get coffee. Hmm, sounds good, let's go have coffee. He's asking all these questions, he's interested in your family, how you've been, what's going on, you're like, wow, how thoughtful. And then before you leave, he says, oh by the way, did I tell you about the new business opportunity that I just came into? Would you like to be a part of it, right? And in that moment, what do you find out? He doesn't care about you. He only cares about what you can do for him. He wants something from you. And God's desire to dwell with his people proves that he's not merely after this transactional relationship. Right, so how's your relationship with God? How's your relationship with God? Not what have you done for him. How is your relationship with him? Do you only ever talk to God when you need or want something from him? And here's the thing, it's not bad to pray to God. The Bible says, let your request be made known to God. We're invited to make our requests known to God. The, the, issue is, the, the issue is living with God, having a relationship with him is far more than to-dos and requests. It's a life where we actually enjoy our God. 
actually enjoy him. And now most Christians that I know, that I have conversations with, we, we say we want that. Maybe you actually even do want it. Most people I know say they wanna move past this transactional experience with Jesus and move into genuinely enjoying him. We say we want it, but we spend the vast majority of our time ignoring him altogether. And then we wonder why God feels so distant. Right? It's a life where we actually enjoy our God. Imagine a marriage where you only talk about the task list and what you need from one another, which is not bad, you need to do that, but you never intentionally take time enjoying being together. And the point I wanna make with that is, is it takes work to move past transaction into genuinely enjoying one another, but the work's not hard. It takes work, but the work's not hard. If, if one of you were to say to me, hey, here's what I want you to do tonight. I need you to take your wife out to dinner and I want you to have no agenda. Just go with the intent of enjoying being together. Is that difficult? No, but I can promise you I don't do it enough. You know what it's easy to downshift into? Our, our life, if we're not careful, if we're not intentional to do the work, even though the work's not hard, we can downshift into, hey, what do we have coming up this week? When do I need to pick up the kids? What are we gonna have from dinner? Who's gonna go to the grocery store, right? Moving past transaction and into genuine relationship is difficult or is not difficult, but it does take work. And this is why at the beginning of chapter 35, before God reiterates the instructions for the tabernacle, what he says to his people is this, chapter 35, verse one, Moses assembles them. He says, these are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day, you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. So before he reiterates the instructions, he says, hey, don't forget about the Sabbath. He says, this is how I want you to do the work. Before he says, here's the work I want you to do, here's how I want you to do it. And the reason why is because they and you and I have a temptation to try to live for God without living with him. There's a temptation in all of our lives to try to do for God and yet not live with God. And he reminds them, He says, six days you work hard, but you take a day to rest, a day where you're not consumed with all the things that you have to do and you just be with me. A day where you actually try to put into practice, James 4, 8, that says, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. And what a promise that the God of the universe would say to you and me, sinful, undeserving people, you draw near to me, I'm there. A day where you put into practice Psalm 46.10 that says, be still and know that I'm God. That my steadfast love endures forever. My patience will never end. So living for God means living with God. And then here's the second thing. It means obedience to God. This is another word we don't like in our culture, obedience, right? Because we're the center of our world, so who should we obey? No one but ourselves, right? Um, one of the things that stands out in the last few chapters of Exodus, if you read through it, is how many times the phrase, just as the Lord commanded, shows up. And the reason why I read that portion of chapter 40 is because I wanted you to see it. I wanted you to feel it, just as the Lord commanded. I counted like 20 times in the last few chapters of Exodus. Half of those are in what we read in Exodus 40. Verse 16, this Moses did according to all the Lord commanded him, so he did. 
Verse 19, he spread the tent over the tabernacle, put the covering on it as the Lord commanded him. Verse 21, he brought the ark to the tabernacle as the Lord commanded him. We see the same thing in verse 23 and 25 and 27 and verse 29 and verse 32, just as the Lord commanded. And the point is living for God means obedience to him. And it's not just obedience. It's not just do what I said because I said. It is obedience that is motivated by our relationship with him. This is why I said it's impossible to live for God if you don't live with God. Obedience is motivated by our relationship with him. And here's why, and you know this already, but I can promise you, as one of your pastors, you're gonna come to the point in your life, maybe even today, where you hit the spot in the moment where God says go this way and you know he says go this way, but you wanna go this way. That point's coming. It already has, it's coming again for all of us. We're gonna hit the fork in the road where we know God says go this way, but no, no, no. What does he know, right? And you're gonna respond one of two ways. You're gonna be like my kids who demand an explanation, God, why? Or you'll be like Pharaoh, chapter five, who says who's the Lord? Which means he has no relationship with him. He doesn't know him. He, isn't, he doesn't know God's goodness. He doesn't know God's grace and his patience and his mercy and his kindness. His obedience isn't motivated by relationship because without relationship, it's a lot easier for you to doubt that God knows what's best for you. But inside relationship with God where you spend the time to draw near to God and have him draw near to you and you be still and you know that he is God. Inside relationship with him, it's a lot easier when you hit that moment in your life to go, I don't think this is what's best for me, but God, I trust you because I know you're good and I know you're kind and I know you're gracious and I know you know more than me. Obedience is motivated out of relationship. Living for God means obedience to God. Here's the third thing. Look with me, chapter 35. Chapter 35, we're gonna read quite a bit here. Starting in verse four. So Moses, he says to all the congregation, the people of Israel, he says, this is the thing the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple, scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, goat's hair, Tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, fragrant incense, and onyx stones, stones for setting, for the ephod, for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all the Lord has commanded. Skip down to verse 20. And then all the congregation of the people of Israel, they left from the presence of Moses. And as they come, everyone whose heart stirred him, that's important, his heart stirred, everyone whose spirit moved inside of him, brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting. Verse 22, so they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets and all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins, they brought them. And everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought that as a contribution to the Lord. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use brought it. Every skillful woman spun with her hands and they all brought what they had and they spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen and all the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light and oil, anointing oil for the fragrant incense. And he says this, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, they brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. 
another place where you go, what does that have to do with me, all right? It's a place where Bible reading plans go to die. What is this? Um, Here's the point. So not only has God invited them to be a part of the work that he's doing in the world, one of the ways that he's invited them in is that they would be giving of their skills and their stuff. Giving of their skills and their stuff, right? So before you get nervous, yeah, living for God means giving generously. Before you get nervous, no special offering today, okay? It's the same as it always is. We're not passing a special plate. The boxes are in the back as you exit for you to give, as the Bible says, the the Spirit stirs your heart for you to give generously. You give what God would compel you to give, right? I'm, I'm not, no special offering, I'm just telling you what the Bible says, all right? Chapter 36 goes on to say, after they hear this, that every morning, morning after morning after morning, the people are coming and they're bringing, they're bringing so much to the degree they had more than they needed, more than they knew even what to do with, and Moses responds this way, chapter 36, verse five, on the screen. The people bring much more than enough for doing the work the Lord has commanded us to do, so Moses gave a command. And word was proclaimed in the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. So people were, get this, restrained from bringing. For the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. They are so generous that Moses actually tells them to stop giving. And now we, you, are a generous congregation, but I promise you, no one has ever got up here and said, hey, listen, it's too much, stop. We haven't had that problem. Anyone grow up small, rural, Southern Baptist church, thermometer on the, table, on the stage? Here's how much we need to raise. What's happening in Exodus 35 and six is the thermometer set to how it feels outside, okay? It's just, just flying through. We got more than we need. It's hotter than we need in here, right? That's what's happening here. And what's interesting is it says the only people who gave were those with generous hearts, those whose hearts stirred to, it says, give and do the work. And so this wasn't a, well, I guess I'll help if you guys need me. That's not what's happening here. This is open-handed, glad-hearted generosity of both their stuff and their skills, which means their material possessions, the things they had, the resources and the skills, the way that God had uh, uh, crafted them and wired them. And some of them were good at making boxes out of acacia wood. And some of them were good at spinning goat skin and, and fine twined ram's hair, right? I know you all have those skills. And so maybe we can talk about how to use that here. Um, but, but what we're seeing is they're generous with their stuff and their skills. And here's why. This is what's important. Because they wanted to participate in the work that God was doing in the world. That's why. And so it says that they're stirred in their spirit. So what happens is God not only gives them the resources or the skills to do the work, but he stirs them with his Holy Spirit in their spirit to use those gifts for God rather than for themselves. That's what's going on here. And the point is we should all live like this as well. It's real simple. Living for God means giving generously of both our stuff and our skills. It means our lives should be marked by this type of generous giving. Again, not because God needs it, because he could do it without us completely, but because God has invited us in. And here's, what better way to use the things you have and the things that you can do than to participate with the creator God of the universe in the work that he's doing in the world. And I hope you saw here, there's an individual and a corporate response to this. We saw individual people and then like they're all just coming day by day, they're doing this. And what this means for us is that the work that God has called us to do, the generosity, the giving that we should live our lives that should be marked by is not the work of a select few who stand on this stage and the majority of Christians just come in here once a week and watch everybody else do the work. 
There's an individual and a corporate response that everybody has a role to play, right? So what is the role that God is inviting you to participate in in your life? both individually and corporately. So you think about it from a corporate standpoint. So you come to this church, if you are part of CBC, what is the role that God's invited you to play? How has he gifted you? What are the things, the skills, the stuff, right? We need help in the nursery or in serving or if you're gifted in musicianship. Like I don't sing on Sunday because that's not the way God's wired me. But how has God wired you to participate in the work that he's doing in the world? There's work here, but there's also an individual response to that, that God has placed you specifically in your neighborhood and at your office, and he has given you the things he's given you and made you members of the different places that you're members of so that you would participate with him in the work of not building a tabernacle, but building the church, making disciples, being 1 Corinthians 5 says, 2 Corinthians 5, says the, the love of Christ controls us, it compels us, meaning I'm so convinced that I am loved individually by the God of the universe because of Jesus, not because of what I do, that it compels me to live my life and to share that love with the people around me. God is inviting us in. We should be giving generously. It's one of the things it means to live for God. Let me give you one more. Don't have much time. Exodus 40, back to 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And that's how the book of Exodus ends, right? There's a bunch of questions that come up from that, but I really just wanna focus on one. Um, it's in verse 35, and it says, the glory of the Lord comes, and it says that Moses can't go in. Why can't Moses go in? That doesn't make any sense. All through the book of Exodus, Moses is the one who met with God, remember, Chapter 34, he comes down from the mountain with this shining face and people are so weirded out. They're like, bro, cover it up. They're afraid. Hey, take it off when you go meet with them. But when you come down, cover your face. It's shining because of the glory of God. That's weird, right? He's the one in Exodus 19 who receives the 10 commandments and there's this raging storm around and everyone's so afraid that when they come down, they say, okay, tell us what God says, but don't let us see that anymore. God is the one who, or, or Moses is the one who actually meets with God on behalf of Israel and he actually puts together the tabernacle. So why now can he not go in? Remember, the tabernacle was the place where God would dwell with his people. Exodus 25, 8, he says, let him make me a sanctuary so that I might dwell in their midst. This was the place where a holy, infinite, eternal, all-knowing God would dwell with sinful people. This was the place and God meets directly with Moses before the tabernacle was built, but once it's built, once the glory of the Lord, the spirit of God enters into the tabernacle, Moses can't go in, and again, that's how the book of Exodus ends. And it's almost like the season finale of a, of a, of a show, and it gives you this cliffhanger, and you go, what the heck? It makes you wanna watch the next season. And you get a little trailer here from verse 36 to 38. This is the next couple seasons. This is them following the spirit of God as they go to the promised land. But the cliffhanger is verse 35. Moses can't go in. And it leaves you wondering, what now? If Moses can't go in, then who can? And if you read the book of Leviticus, which is the next book of the Bible, which is essentially season three, Exodus season two, Genesis season one, you get it? 
if you read season three, what you learn is that it's not really that Moses can't go in, it's that he can't go in yet. And this is what we see in the first nine chapters of Leviticus, is that God, he lines out for his people the sacrificial system. And he shows them through intricate, painful, sometimes complex detail, all the offering and sacrifice that must be made in order for a holy God to dwell with sinful people. And the the baseline of those first nine chapters is blood must be shed. It don't matter who it is. If they're coming in, blood must be shed, even Moses. And at the end of chapter nine, Moses actually does get to go into the tabernacle. I want you to see this. Leviticus 9, starting at 22, should be on the screen. And then Aaron, he lifted his hands toward the people and he blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. That's all explained in Leviticus 9, if that's confusing. Um, 23, and Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. So they're in now. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and then fire comes out from before the Lord and consumes the burnt offering and the pieces of fat that were on the altar. And all the people saw it, they shout and they fell on their faces. Crazy scene, right? This just blast of fire comes out of the tent and burns up their offering. So what happens is Moses and Aaron, they make sacrifice for sins. And what I want you to do is imagine how they would have felt. So all the rules, all the regulations for the tabernacle, they did it right, the glory of the Lord comes, but they can't go in. All the rules, all the regulations for the offering, and they do it, and they put it there, and they stand back and go, I hope we did it right. Did we do enough? Is our offering good enough to cover our sins? Will God accept it? And the Bible says, as they're waiting in fear and trepidation, that this fire blasts out from the tent, from the presence of the Lord, and it consumes the offering, which means that their offering was accepted by him. And how do they respond to that? It says they shout and they fall on their face. And this word shout, in other places in the Bible, it's translated to rejoice or to sing, which means that when they saw that their sacrifice had been accepted by God, they worshiped. They responded in worship. And here's the fourth thing. Living for God is impossible without a sacrifice. We've said over and over again, the Exodus story is our story. But in reality, the only reason that it's our story is because it's a story that points us to Jesus. I want you to hear this. This is from a guy named Phil Riken in a commentary on the book of Exodus. He says, the book of Exodus really is his story. Jesus is the Moses of our salvation. He's the mediator who goes for us before God. Jesus is the lamb of our Passover. He's the sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is our way out of Egypt. He's our deliverer who baptizes us in the sea of his grace. Jesus is our bread in the wilderness, the provider who gives us what we need for daily life. Jesus is our voice from the mountain. He's declaring his law for our lives. He is the altar of our burning through whom we offer up praise to God. He is the light on our lampstand, the source of our life and our light. Jesus is the basin of our cleansing, the sanctifier of our souls. Jesus is our great high priest who prays for us at the altar of incense and Jesus is the blood on the mercy seat, the atonement that reconciles us to God. The great God of the Exodus has saved us in Jesus Christ. Church, living for God is impossible without Jesus. And, and while these, these brothers and sisters in Leviticus were 
They did, they hope they did everything, right? All the offerings and they lay it there and they stand back and man, I hope it's enough. And they wonder, will God accept us? Will God, will, will our offering, is it enough? Will the sacrifice be enough to cover our sins? While that's where they were, the book of Hebrews, chapter 10 says, because this story is a story that points us to Jesus, we have a sacrifice that's better. Hebrews 10 says, we can have confidence to enter the holy places because Jesus gave his life once for all. Now, um, imagine the difference if you were to come up and show up to these guys and say, hey man, you can have confidence to enter in. They go, you're crazy. But we've been invited in to participate in the work that God is doing in the world and that life is only possible through Jesus. The claim of Christianity is not do your best and hope that someday it's enough. The claim of Christianity is that at your very worst, God gives you his best in Jesus. And he gave his very life and his blood that he might make you what you had absolutely no shot of becoming on your own. And Colossians 1 says that there's a day coming where Jesus will return and on that day Jesus will present you to God the Father holy and blameless and above reproach, which means you will have perfect, joy-filled, eternal communion with him forever. Not because of how hard you tried or how much better you got, but because a resurrected Jesus reached down into your dead life and he gave you grace you didn't deserve and he met you moment by moment every day of your life with mercy that you could never earn and because he alone has covered the sins of your past, sustains you in the present and he alone holds your future. Church, the Exodus story is a story about Jesus and life with God is impossible without him. It means we live for God because we've been invited to participate. It means we live with him and it is our relationship with him that motivates all of our obedience and all of our generous giving. We empty our hands of the treasures of this world so that we can cling to Jesus. And like I said before, I don't know about you, but I don't wanna settle to make life as good as it can possibly be in Egypt. Go with him. Let me pray for us. Father, we're thankful for the Exodus story. Thankful for what you did through it, but mostly because you reminded us and showed us that it is our story. That we are no longer slaves to our sin, no longer trapped under the authority of our flesh, but we have been set free to live for you. And so I pray that for the folks in this room, the men, the women, the children, the power of your Holy Spirit would meet them in this moment. As we sing and respond, would you show them the way that you've invited them to participate for you, but mostly God? Would you show them that you love them? That you are inviting them to live a relationship with you. Thankful for Christ. We pray this in his name, amen. Let's stand and respond together in singing.